You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Hey, in the spring, uh, between Christmas and Easter, we're gonna do a preaching series in John 13 through 17. And what's unique about those five chapters is that they're all about one night. It's the night that Jesus spent with his disciples before his death. And the reason I'm mentioning that to you is because this week I was struck by some of the parallels between that night and John 13 through 17 and some of the themes that have been running through Romans 8, which we're looking at right now. Uh, On that night, there was uncertainty. Uh, The disciples, uh, on one hand, were excited. They had hopes for the kingdom of God to come. They were arguing with each other about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. But on the other hand, Jesus was saying some things that were a little concerning. Like, hey, I'm only gonna be with you for a little bit longer and then I'm gonna leave. You're gonna look for me and you you won't be able to find me. What? And he was saying to them, hey, in this world, actually you're gonna have a lot of trouble. So much of the discourse on that night was Jesus trying to Uh, comfort them and give assurance to them that things were gonna be okay. Because they were wondering, what is is he saying and what does this mean for us? And so Jesus said, I'm leaving you, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then I'll come back and I'll get you. In the meantime, you can pray. Ask anything you want in my name and I'll do it. And he was telling them, I'm leaving, but the Father is going to send a helper. The Holy Spirit will lead you and teach you and remind you of all the things that I've said. And so in their uncertainty and suffering that was to come, the Holy Spirit would also come and give them a hope and a joy that could never be taken away from them. I just think that is a really good picture of what's going on in Romans 8. In Romans 8, in general, Paul is addressing the reality of uncertainty and of suffering, and he does so by highlighting the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit, he says, helps us in our weakness. He gives us joy even in our suffering. Right, that's, that's Romans 8 in general. In the specific passage that we're looking at today, verses 26 through 30, The aim here, I think, is Paul's trying to flip the script, the narrative in our minds. In our minds, we think we'll be happy when we get control of things. We'll be happy when we get the thing that we want. And in these verses, Paul is telling us how much happiness there is in knowing that God's in control and how much joy there can be found when what he wants happens how much better it is than what we want even. In these verses, Paul is talking about the sovereignty of God, which means God has authority and rule over all creation and he can exercise his power in any way that he wants to, whatever pleases him. Now, conversations about the sovereignty of God, in my experience, can quickly get pretty academic and impersonal, and that is far from the tone of this passage. Paul's purpose here is pastoral. He wants to bring assurance and hope and confidence and joy to people who struggle, to people who doubt, to people who lose sight of God's grace in their lives. 
people like us. And the way he does that is by talking about the sovereignty of God. And so we're gonna look at three aspects of God's sovereignty that we see in this text today. Three things that can give us real joy and confidence. Uh, they all start with I. We're gonna look at God's initiative toward us, his involvement with us, and his intention for us. All right, let's start with God's initiative toward us. When you heard these verses read or when you read them, probably the first thing that jumps out to you is words like foreknew and predestined. We'll just start there because that's what you want to talk about anyway. I did fraternity ministry for a number of years and they always wanted to talk about that. And I always wanted to be like, hey, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Like, let's start somewhere else. These are vast verses, right? You want to know what these words mean. You want to know how they relate to our experience of salvation and our future with God because all of that is wrapped up here in this series of terms. Look at verse 29. Just look at the scope of what he's saying here. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. It's huge scope, and so many questions. Like, what does it mean that God foreknew us? Does it mean that he could like see into time and he knew who would choose him? Does it mean that God knew beforehand who he would choose or who he chose them beforehand? Or does it mean that God chose Jesus and he knew what would be true of all who believe in him? Or is it some nuance of those things? And in any case, what are the implications for how we think about the sovereignty of God and human responsibility to believe in the gospel and repent of sin? There's a lot to talk about here. It would be very tempting to go down all the theological avenues that are presented here. And if you want to do that, listen, I would be happy to connect you with Alex. You guys can do that. His number, I think, is on the screen before church. You can do that. Uh, it would be edifying to do that, but listen, that's not what Paul's doing here. Here, Paul is actually building up to this declaration at the end of Romans 8 about the love of God. We're gonna look at it next week, but the transition is in verse 31. He says, what shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What are the, these things? He's pointing back to all of these terms that he's stacking up in verses 28 and 29. Paul wrote these things, these words, not to start a debate, but to convince us that God is for us and that we are secure in his love. The, the foreknowledge of God is not abstract. It's, it's warm and personal. It, to know in the Bible, that's an intimate term. It doesn't just mean to know facts. It means to know someone relationally. So just quick example, in Amos, uh, the prophet Amos, God says through Amos to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Well, God certainly knows about Babylon, right? He, he knows about other nations on the earth. So what's he saying? He's saying he knows Israel in a special way, in a unique way, in an intimate way that's different from the way that he knows all the other nations on the earth. And why did he choose Israel? Well, Deuteronomy 7 says, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not 
because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of the peoples. It was because the Lord loves you. Isn't that great? Why did God set his love on you? Because he loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. He's a covenant keeping, faithful, loving God, which is humbling because I brought nothing to the table, but also so comforting. Because like Israel, God sees us. He sees us in our weakness. He sees us in our suffering. And he comes to us. He doesn't move away. He moves in, toward. He doesn't give us a lecture. He gives us himself. Romans 5, 8. While we were sinners... Christ died for us. God saw our helplessness and gave us his son. And the major note in Romans 8 is that God sees our weakness and so he gives us his spirit. The initiating love of God brings real, concrete hope, comfort, and confidence to us. It's comforting because it means God doesn't dismiss our suffering. He doesn't mock our shame. He moves into it. We don't even have to ask him to. He just does because it's his nature to do so. His initiating love instills confidence because it sets before us, as Paul has here, the whole scope of his salvation. So when we're talking about his initiative, we're talking about from beginning to end, his involvement with us. So whatever God starts, he finishes. We see that in the progression of these terms, right? If you, if you look at it, he says, for those he foreknew, he predestined, and those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified. He keeps linking the terms together so that you get it, so that you can see this cannot be broken. God's love for you cannot be broken. He will never leave nor forsake you, and that just gives so much confidence that he finishes his work in us. Paul gives them the whole scope of God's sovereign grace in one sentence, I think, so that they can just see how certain it is. I've used this illustration before, but I just, I never tire of its glory. In 2006, Texas played USC for the national championship in the Rose Bowl. Some of you saw it. Some of you are there now, emotionally. You know it that well. Uh, all the hype was around USC leading into that game, but the, it was a close game until it wasn't. With six minutes and 42 seconds, I didn't even have to look that up. With six minutes and 42 seconds left in the game, USC scored a touchdown to go up by 12 points. And on that same play, one of our guys broke his leg. And I remember the scene. The USC players are celebrating in the end zone and in the end zone, our guy is laying there helpless and it felt like a metaphor, like an existential reality. It felt like a picture of what all Texas fans were feeling. It felt helpless. And sure enough, they pan the crowd to Texas fans and you could see that on their faces, just utter despair. And then they would pan to USC fans and they were just going nuts. I mean, just celebrating it because they knew, they just knew at that point that they, they had it won. And most of you know that the story did not go that way. We came back and we won that game. 
Um, it's fun to talk about now, but at 642 mark, it was, it was awful. And the entire, every second of that last six minutes and 42 seconds was painful. It, it was anxious pacing, it was groaning in my living room. Fourth and five, I didn't know what was gonna happen. Now it's like one of the highlights of my life. You know, I go back and I watch that game. I watched some of it this morning, it's great. Uh, and I watch it totally differently now. When we get to the 642 mark and our guys laying in the end zone and they're celebrating, I don't, I don't fret it at all. I just kick back, because I know what's gonna happen. When they pan to the USC fans, I'm not angry, I, I, li I like it. I know what comes after the, the, the pride, the fall comes. I enjoy all of those moments, which were in the moment very painful and anxious ridden. Why? Well, because I know the end of the story. When you know the end of the story, it affects how you interpret all of the events in the story. Paul's giving us the whole scope so that we could see it. Because some of you are at the 642 mark. Like this is a low point for you in your life. Some of you are pacing, you're anxious, you're groaning. And Paul wants you just to lift your eyes and see that God's initiating love carries all the way through to glory. And if you can see that, it'll affect how you interpret the events now. Groaning is gonna turn into glory. All right, that's God's initiative toward us. Let's talk about his involvement with us, here and now. Jump back up to verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the, the overall tension in Romans 8 is just that we live in between worlds. Like, like we have the Spirit, we're in the Spirit, but, but also the flesh still wages war against us. And we're children of God, but we still live in this broken world. And we have these promises about future glory, but we can't see how or when it's all going to come to pass. We live in this in-between time, and there's a lot of tension there. And these verses are speaking right into that tension. Paul acknowledges it. He says here we're weak. The verb is singular, not plural. Meaning, Ray Orland puts it this way. He says, our problem is not that we have various weaknesses. Our problem is that we have a basic and pervasive weakness. In our humanity, we are weak. And it touches everything that we are, even our prayer life. The issue here is not that we don't pray enough or that we don't say the right words. The issue is that we don't even know what to pray for. That's why we're always qualifying our prayers with Phrases like, if it's your will, God, because we don't know. Like, here's what I want, but well, I don't know. Whatever you want. We don't know. But the Spirit knows. And he helps us in our weakness. It means he comes to our aid. He bears our burdens with us. How does he do this? 
He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, this could mean that the Spirit translates our groanings into prayers to God. Could also mean that the Spirit just simply prays for us. He prays with words that, that we don't, that aren't perceptible to us. Either way, I think both of these ideas can kind of come together in this text because in this chapter, groaning is associated with suffering and longing. And so we groan because we don't know what to say in the face of suffering. And so the Holy Spirit enters into our groaning and our suffering and he prays for us. What we long for is new creation, for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven, but but we don't always know what exactly that looks like or what exactly we're supposed to do toward that end. But the Spirit knows, and He intercedes for us. He prays according to the will of God. And God answers those prayers. I think one of the main ways God answers that prayer is by pulling us into kingdom work. The Spirit is praying that God would use us in His purposes, and He answers that prayer. So it's not just that God is is working things out despite our choices, it's that He's doing so through our choices. Both are true. Verse 27 uh, just focuses on the effectiveness of the Spirit's prayer. So the Spirit himself intercedes for us and he who searches hearts, so God the Father who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit knows what God wants, and he prays that for us. One commentary puts it this way. He says, when we are silenced by suffering, but bowing down before the Lord is our only hope, at that moment, when we don't know what to pray, God does not wait for our words and thoughts to form. He searches our hearts, and he finds there the mind of the Spirit interceding for us. This is deep stuff. This is not something that any of us would know if God didn't reveal it to us. It's mis- it has mystery and beauty. It's deep and it's wonderful. God is involved in our lives in a deep, mysterious, intimate way. A uh, num- number of years ago, one of my boys came into our room late at night And I said, what's up? And he said, you're not gonna understand what I'm going to say, and you're not, oh, he said, I don't know, sorry, let me back up. He said, see, I don't understand it. He said, I don't understand what I'm about to say, and you're not going to understand what I say. How's that for a setup? I was like, well, how about you just try to say it, and let's see. And so he said, I don't feel right. I said, okay, well, what do you mean? He said, I don't know. I just don't feel right. He was right. I didn't understand it. I, I understand that feeling. You ever felt that way? Like just something in your life doesn't feel right, it's just not right, you can't put your finger on it, you don't even know what to say about it, it just doesn't feel right. That's how he felt, and he came to us that night because he thought 
If anyone can understand it, it's gonna be my mom and dad, right? And he asked us to pray for him because he didn't even know what to pray. Now listen, we didn't say to him, hey son, why don't you come back when you can make sense of what you're saying? We didn't tell him just to go, go to bed and figure it out. We moved toward him. We put our hands on him. We prayed for him the best we knew how. We tried to understand him and pray for him. We did it imperfectly. But listen, (laughs) we have a father in heaven who loves us perfectly. He searches our hearts. He knows us intimately. And by his spirit, he prays, intercedes for us. So that even in those moments where it doesn't feel right, where you don't know what to say, where you don't even know what to pray. Nevertheless, in those moments, there is effectual, powerful prayer for your needs according to the will of God and for the needs of the world around you. It's always happening, praise God. You know, parents can discern the cries of their babies, their children. Like, you know, that cry's for real and that one's not. That cry means hunger, that one means boredom. You you know the the cries of your children because you're just, you're so in it with them. God is so in it with us that he discerns the cries of our heart. That's all prayer is, it's a cry of the heart. And God hears it, discerns it, intercedes for us. That's God's involvement with us. Let's talk about his intention for us. Where's all this going? I'll give you the big reveal up front and then we'll, we'll back up and work up to it. God's intention for us, for all who are in Christ is right here in the middle of verse 29. It is to conform us to the image of his son. Paul uses the word predestined here. And again, it's not to start a debate, it's to comfort us. This text is not about the difficulties, it's about the certainties. And and if you're in Christ, here's something that you can be absolutely certain about. God has plans for you, and those plans are to conform you to the image of his son. He is molding you in Christ-likeness. We're gonna become like the one that we love. All right, let's back up to verse 28. This is a very well-known verse. Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his, called according to his purpose. So in verse 25, we don't see. In verse 26, we don't know. That resonates. There's all kinds of things that we don't see and we don't know. And yet, we can have hope. Because here's something we do know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Let's just note that this verse is about those who love God. That that's just the basic orientation of a Christian. We love God, that's all he's saying. He's not saying that this promise is for those who really love God, like for high performing Christians. This is for all who are in Christ, for those who love God. For those who love God, all things work together for good. So what is the all things? It's all of them, all the things. Things you planned and didn't plan, things you did, things that were done to you, highs and lows, 
All things happen to Christians. We're not immune from hardship and pain and suffering. You know that. In fact, verse 17 indicates that this is part of our calling to suffer with Christ, to share in his sufferings. All things, even our suffering, work together for good. All right, so we have to talk about what is good. Well, first of all, let's say this. Um, God, this does not mean that God causes evil or suffering or sin in your life. God does not cause evil and suffering. He allows them, right? And that's hard to, that's hard to hold together. There's a lot of mystery there. We have a hard time holding together suffering and evil and, and God's presence in the world and love for us. In the same way that we have a hard time holding together his sovereign grace and our responsibility to repent and believe. Like both, all of that can exist in God. We, we can't see it, but that's because we're unqualified for the job. Like we're not God. And so Paul's asking us here to say, hey, God holds these things together. Let's trust him and let's lean into what we know. Well, here's one thing we know. We know that God is not the author of sin and evil. He's the author of redemption and salvation. That's what these verses are trying to say. God takes all the sin and the suffering and everything that happens in our lives and he works it together for good, for our salvation and glory. I think that's why um, we don't like it when people quote this verse to us. Like this is an amazing verse that all things work together for good, but has anybody, anybody ever said this to you in your suffering? It's irritating, right? Why is that? Well, because it feels like they're minimizing our suffering. It feels like they're just coming along and saying, hey, let's look on the bright side. I, I, I don't know, man, there's not a lot of bright right now. I'm just, you know? I think that's why we don't like it. And let me just say that God is not saying that to you. God is not coming to you in your suffering and saying, hey, there's, every cloud has a silver lining. That's, sometimes clouds just dump rain on you and you're wet and you don't know why. Right? God's not saying, hey, whenever I shut a door, I open a window. I don't know, sometimes the door just slams shut and you gotta trust God in it. Like just God isn't saying those things. And we know that just from one example, like when Jesus is called to Lazarus's tomb, he knows what he's gonna do, right? He knows he's gonna raise Lazarus, but he doesn't, he doesn't walk up and tell everybody, hey guys, don't worry about it. I'm about to work all this out for good. He weeps. He mourns. He doesn't minimize our suffering. This verse is, is not trying to, to change your suffering. It's trying to change you in the suffering. But Jesus just weeps and mourns. He does raise Lazarus from the dead. It doesn't always go that way. It goes that way in that moment because that is a significant moment that points to the reality of our hope of resurrection, which is what Paul is pointing to here. Look at verse 29. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is, this is resurrection language. This is all of us being raised up with Christ, Jesus, the oldest brother, receiving all of the honor and the glory of the eldest. 
his joy and delight in his brothers and sisters. This is the resurrection that we're looking forward to. And so the good in verse 28, working all things together for good, is connected to the purpose in verse 29. Just look at the, look at the parallels. Verse 28, those who love God, all things work together for good. Verse 29, those whom God foreknew, it's the same group of people, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The good that God is moving you toward in all of the things that are happening in your life, the things that he's working out is your conformity to the image of Christ. He's molding you in the image of his son. It's happening now and it will come into full bloom on the last day when we're raised up with him. So when Paul says that for those who love God, all things work together for good, he doesn't mean all things will work together according to your plans. It doesn't mean God's just gonna figure out how to make your vision of life become reality. It's, it's better than that. He means that God is working out his vision for your life. That will come into reality according to his purpose. I have a friend in uh, Fort Worth named Jim and he wrote this this week and uh, it's a pretty great picture of this. Jim says, the Atacama Desert is in Chile. It's the driest place on earth receiving just one millimeter of rain each year. It's so dry. It's so dry that NASA runs Mars test missions there. I don't know if any of this is true. Jim wrote it. I assume it's true. He said, but just below the desert floor is a flood of possibility. 200 varieties of flowers lie beneath the surface and every five years or so, enough rain falls to create what's called a super bloom. It's an eruption of color. The desert comes to life full of glory. I looked up a picture of this. It is an amazing sight, truly. Life in this world is a wilderness. It just is. It, on the surface of things, there is uncertainty and suffering. But what Paul's trying to help us see is that just below the surface, God has planted his purposes in the soil of our lives. And even when just a little bit of grace rains down, we see some of it coming into bloom. We see the fruit of the spirit. We see the image of Christ coming in, in us. But all of that is just a taste of the super bloom that's gonna come when we are like him, face to face with him. Super bloom glory. We don't always see how it works out now. My guess is we see a very small fraction of how things are being worked out for good now. But God has given us some examples that I think give us a taste of it. So you know the story of Joseph, Joseph gets sold or thrown into a pit by his brothers to die, but then he gets sold into slavery. Listen, Joseph at no point in there was thinking, man, I, I, I'm thankful for this because God's gonna work it out for good. I, I don't think that's in the story anywhere. I think Joseph, Joseph is like, why? Why is this happening to me? He does, however, focus on how to just walk with God in the midst of it. He's faithful, he's obedient, best he can. Later we see God uses that circumstance to bring Joseph to power in Egypt to what? Save his brothers who threw him in the pit. And in Genesis 50, Joseph says to them, what you meant for harm, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. 
He could see it. And when we see it, we can see a little taste of how God does it. The disciples pulled this same thread in their preaching in Acts. In Acts, they are preaching to the religious leaders and they say this in Acts 2, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So, so what happened on the cross, on one hand, was God's plan. On the other hand, you crucified and killed him. Lawless men. You did evil, you did harm, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The cross was horrible, horrible evil. And God used it for good. The early Christians did not see God's sovereignty as a problem. They saw it as a source of comfort and confidence to preach things like this. And it is the same for us today. God's intention is to conform us to the image of Christ. And so even when awful, awful things happen, we have this confidence that he's moving us somewhere good into the likeness of Christ. The question is, do you want that? I mean, if what we really want is just our vision of life, I think we're gonna be uncertain and anxious a lot. Paul is trying to lift our eyes to God's vision because if, if what we really want is God's vision for our lives, then we can rest in his sovereign grace. For all who love God, this is your confidence today. God loves you just because he loves you. God is intimately involved in your life, interceding for you so that his will might come to fruition in your life. And God has a plan for you that is bigger and better than anything you could have ever dreamt up for yourself. He is conforming you into the likeness of his glorious son, Jesus, who in their right mind would not want that. Let's give thanks. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.